I grew up feasting on the photos of these women, faded images of Lurlene and my Aunt Lerma, my mother Jamel. My women will be the ones to answer my questions. They were alchemists, transforming the weight of expectation into drive. My grandmother learned self-determination from Lurlene, Grandma, Gloria passed that knowledge down to Mama, Mama passed it down to me and Ramona, and I was intent on passing it down to my daughters. Three generations later, we have Penelope. My third child, my angry toddler, who after round 1,000 of what becomes a steady stream of anguished outbursts and fights, told me one day, Mama, I'm not a girl, I am a boy. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, Jody Patterson, author of The Bold World, a memoir of family and transformation. First, the news. Hi, I'm Janice Adams, and welcome to the show. Today, my guest is a long-term family friend, daughter, wonderful, amazing writer, mother, activist, advocate, Jody Patterson. She's the author of two books, The Bold World, A Memoir of Family and Transformation, and her newest book, Born Ready, The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope. Jody, welcome to the show. We get to do this. We finally pulled it all together. I've been waiting for this moment. And we talk all the time. But, <laughs> <laughs> and I rely on you uh, all the time. But this is special. So thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Jody, when I saw the first book, The Bold World, I was just taken by its power, its beauty. The cover has a quote by Alice Walker, who is a woman of many words, and she boils it down to three, a marvelous book, which it is. Would you read something from the book to start? That would be my pleasure. And I have to say, when I received um, Ms. Walker's words, I felt that I had done something that could be shared with my children and their children. Yeah. Their children. And so it just made me feel really strong. So I'm, I was happy to have her on my cover. And I'm also happy to share some of the words with you and your audience today. I want to start with the prologue, which is called The South. And the funny thing is, this was not the opening part of the book, but we eventually moved it here because it's, it felt so strong for me. And it felt like the grounding language for the book. The South. I've always been told that women are powerful, tenacious, and important, that we pull from limitless places, that we make magic wherever we go, shining light into the darkness, forming impenetrable shields with our love, that beneath moments of weakness are endless reserves of strength. But I, woman, am feeling none of those powers. With my grown-up life in full swing, there is never enough time to pause. I have five children, a husband, an ex-husband, a schedule that often leads to a grinding 60-hour work week and a crippling fear of the very life I've created. To cope, I simply set a goal and I don't stop until I, the bullet, hit the target. I'm in need of what the South holds, of the spirit in the earth and of mama and her steady ways. Needing to maybe most of all the women, my women, those matriarchs of lineage whose stories and voices and faces I often lean on like prayers, a 
especially during times like these, times when I've lost myself completely and then return to the South once more, hoping to breathe the Atlanta air and remember where I come from. Digging deep into a drawer, I pull out a photo I've always loved looking at. It must have been taken in the mid-1970s. Four generations of us women traveled to a local Sears and Roebuck to sit for a portrait. My mother's at the top left corner of the frame, a young mom at the time, barely 30. Grandma Gloria is to her right, all pointy lapel and gold, dangling earrings, a pair of glasses hanging from a chain around her neck. My sister Ramon appears on the left bottom, small and defiant, and I'm on the right bottom, age six, wearing the same polyester jumpsuit as my big sissy. Between us sits great-grandma the Lurleen. Never mind the dark sunglasses she's wearing obscure her eyes. Her penetrating gaze is unmistakable. Lurleen's signature face, perfectly captured in that photo, said, then and always, I am not playing. She had a talent for communicating a lot without saying much at all. I don't remember her smiling much either. Lurleen obtained her college degree and credits towards her master's in the early 1900s. This during the first decade of the long reign of separate but equal, a system that rarely translated into higher education for colored people. But she came from a long line of teachers and preachers and entrepreneurs who managed to work the system and carve out a place for themselves. They gained access to an accelerated track to opportunity. With that access came a deep sense of expectation. Lurleen's parents made it very clear that there was no other direction to go but forward, no other measure of doing well than by being the best. No excuses for failure, certainly not the color of your skin and most definitely not your gender. I grew up feasting on the photos of these women, faded images of Lurleen and my aunt Lerma, my mother Jamel, their sister Ramona. Each year I ran my hands across their portraits and learned a little bit more about the formidable women inside the frames. My women will be the ones to answer my questions. They were alchemists, transforming the weight of expectation into drive, grief and hardship into vision. Each of them took whatever scary thoughts might have kept them up at night and turned those thoughts into power. They never imagined themselves being stomped out and they always insisted on their freedom. They were activists, educators, leaders, women who refused to follow. And if they ever felt restraint rising up, they just got up and left, changed their circumstances and never turned back. My grandmother learned self-determination from Lurleen, grandma, Gloria passed that knowledge down to mama, mama passed it down to me and Ramona, and I was intent on passing it down to my daughters. Three generations later, we have Penelope. My third child, my angry toddler, who after round 1000 of what becomes a steady stream of anguished outbursts and fights, told me one day, mama, I'm not a girl, I am a boy. And with that, you begin the story of the bold world, but the story of the bold world doesn't begin there. Really, it doesn't. Where does it begin? You talk about these amazing women. You talk about Lurleen, who doesn't smile. 
Why does Lurleen not smile? I don't know if that was the language she was communicating through. Softness, um, affirmations, hugs and kisses. That wasn't the language of Lurleen. Lurleen, <clears throat> and I think I've become a bit of this myself. Um, I've been Except told- Except that you have a lovely smile. <laughs> today, but I've been told by my children as well that I might not always be a snuggly type of mom, but the type of, of leadership that Lurleen was bringing was about architecture and building. Um, and we've oftentimes understood mothering as cuddles and warmth and a soft place to land, which is a great thing, which are great things. But what Lurleen was doing was building us up. She was an architect, she was a builder and her leadership, her mothering looked like, like foundation work. So there wasn't, the smiling was not essential to what she had come to do. And I don't recall, not one smile. <laughs> Not one smile, but I tell you, um, it didn't translate into a negative love or a, a deficit of love. It translated into motivation and security and um, stability in unity. The reason I asked that question is because when I read that section, what it evoked for me was Toni Morrison speaking on the Oprah Winfrey show with a group of women in conversation and saying, when a child comes into the room, any child, your child, does your face light up? <laughs> and she goes on to say that as mothers, you know, your child walks into the room, you're looking to see you know, the pants pulled up, you know, the hairbrush, the this, that, and the other. And in your mind, that's caring. But for the child, it's not. It's about, does your face light up? Mm -hmm. Lurleen is of a different generation. She seems to be of the generation more of Tony's mom than of Tony. And more than the generation is where she lived and the period of time in which she lived. I remember that um, interview with Oprah and I spent several years practicing a smile. <laughs> I did, because it's true what we're doing as mothers and what we're doing as leaders oftentimes does not translate for our children. Um, I mean, I was lucky to understand what Lurleen was doing. And I think maybe because my mother and my grandmother were interpreting for her. And so we had my I was lucky to have my great grandmother, my grandmother and my mother all working together. And that's the, the way the South often works. You have this extended family. But as I'm raising my family in the North and my extended family isn't always there, oftentimes it's just me and my children. And so I had to practice evoking the feelings that I have for my children, which of course is joy and pride. Um, but it doesn't, it, it wasn't always coming out. So yes, I mean, there's, there's a bit of, <laughs> there's a bit of Lurleen in me and there's a bit of the, um, the very affirming and joyful mom as well. So how did you come to your smile mm. when Penel tells you, we now say Penel, but when Penelope tells you, mama, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. Well, that was not a quick smile. 
<laughs> I think the first response I had to that was um, guilt. Or perhaps even before that, I didn't even understand what Pinnell was saying. I thought Pinnell was a girl who was a feminist. So Pinnell was three. Penelope was three at the time. And Penelope said, Mama, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. And so I thought Penelope at three was recognizing the way in which this world often favors boys and men. And I thought Penelope, the girl, was choosing tough boy over weak girl. And so it made me smile, actually. That made me, that, because, you know, I'm a feminist, I'm raised by feminists. So that, um, you know, I was in solidarity with the tough girl, Penelope. But, and so my response, initial response was, however you feel inside is fine. If you want to act like your brothers, you go right ahead <laughs> and you act just like the boys. And Penelope corrected me and said, no, mama, I don't feel like a boy. I am a boy. And I think that when I realized we were talking about um, being as opposed to feeling, I was, my response, I took it personally. I felt I had uh, dropped the ball on this long line of feminists. I had dro dropped the ball on raising a child to be proud to be a female. I thought I had dropped the ball on parenting. So it was not a smile. It was a, um, I think I probably cried at that time. And from that moment, as you think back on it, then what does that moment tell you about the true meaning of feminism? Well, for sure, now I know. And I, and I knew it before. Sometimes we need a reminder. Uh, feminism is for my boys and my girls. It is for my men and my women. It is for the energy of my family. So we, we, we've kept that energy going, Janice. We have not stopped. Um, and, you know, some, some folks might not call it feminism because that has become a gendered term, but it is equality of and yes. equality for. And so as much as this was about a learning of gender and transgender realities for me, this was also a relearning of feminism and the principles that my whole family, my family raised us on. An understanding of human rights. Mm -hmm. And when we come back here on the Janice Adams Show, more with our guest, Jody Patterson, author, mother, activist, advocate, and member of the Human Rights Campaign after the break. We're back here with our guest on the Janice Adams Show today. She is Jody Patterson, the author of The Bold World, A Memoir of Family and Transformation, and of her new book, Born Ready, The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope. In the last segment, we were talking about how your life changed in one moment. Would you read to us then from Penelope's side of the story? It is interesting because um, this is such an adult conversation, gender, transgender, gender flexibility and fluidity, yet and still it is a very young person's reality as well. And so these, the next pages that I want to share 
are really written from Penelope's perspective. So this is um, from my book, Born Ready, The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope. Time out, Pleppy. Why are you so angry, Mama asks. Well, because everyone thinks I'm a girl. However you feel is fine, baby. It's what's on the inside that matters most. If you feel like a boy, that's okay. No, Mama. Mm -mm. I don't feel like a boy. I am a boy. Oh, Mama gets quiet. I love you, Mama, but I don't want to be you. I want to be Papa. I don't want tomorrow to come because tomorrow I'll look like you. Please help me. Mama, help me be a boy. I hold mama's hands and transfer some of my ninja powers to help her understand. Wow. I'm so glad you chose that section. And um, especially because I just love the cover of this book, the sheer joy on the face of this little boy named Penelope. And knowing him in person, uh, the joy that I feel when he and the other children um, come into the room and, and are part of our presence. You mentioned that so often this conversation or this conversation is had generally in adult terms, but it's the child who's living out the reality of it. And in our society today, of course, we have this madness of whatever it is. I don't even want to call it religious fervor. I just want to call it madness of deciding to take out our whatever. The other. On children mm -hmm. right now and passing legislation mm -hmm. to curb the lives, of, to destroy if possible, the lives of children. Jody, how did you fight the destruction of Penelope's life? <laughs> you stunned me with that question. Um, so Penel was three at the time when he told me he was not a girl, but a boy and a boy. And I, when you said the destruction of his life, what flashed through my mind in the hour that we sat there talking together was death, not only of one person, but of an entire family. And it is not a, um, just a feeling. It is something that we know to be true. So it is dangerous to be different. Um, we've seen it um, throughout history. And I can, you know, we can look at it through the civil rights lens and the racial lens, but we can also look at it right now. Um, hundreds of trans-identified people have been killed globally last year. We've got over 250 anti-LGBT bills that are up for grabs, currently speaking. Um, we have over 100 anti-trans bills currently up for grabs. And so this idea of um, stopping the life of the other, curtailing the life of the other is something I, I, um, I knew would also be applied to my son, my, my transgender black son. Um, 
and I wasn't sure where to put that anxiety. Um, and I, <laughs> I, that anxiety built up for a good year because the more research I was doing on being trans and what it's like to be trans and the trans experience, um, the scarier it got. And so what I did was instead of imploding with anger and with anxiety, I put that energy into activism. And um, so when you say, what did I do um, to stop the death of millions of people we're talking about, not just one person, but millions of trans-identified people. Well, I hope that I'm a part of that solution. I joined um, people who are trying to fight in that. Uh, there's an organization called the Human Rights Campaign. I joined as a board member and I now sit on as chair of the foundation board. HRC is our largest LGBT organization. So we not only fight um, legislature and stomp out bills, but we also push for pro-equality officials. And we also run programs that touch little communities, HBCUs, black men in the South living with AIDS, faith communities. So I, I, um, I teamed up with a community, the LGBT community that I had not really thought of in the same way before. This was something that I could not do on my own because every message that I had in my head was a negative message. And so I had to really start from scratch to kind of get new information, establish my footing. I've been knocked off my feet so that I could then go in and, and solidify Penelope. But I myself had been pretty rocked <laughs> at that moment. So I think, you know, when I, working towards, a, you know, fighting for Penelope was finding stability, finding language, finding resources, finding information, um, and then locking arms with a much larger community than I had started off with. Now, as an African-American mother of five, mm -hmm. you knew you were going to have to defend the lives of all of your children. How did Penelope make that understanding different? So I have, I have um, five children, like you said, and we are a, in so many ways a blended family. So I have um, children that uh, we speak multiple languages. We speak Twi from Ghana. We speak um, Swiss German, High German, English, some French, a little pig Latin. Um, <laughs> we have, you know, I have a daughter and I have sons. I have an adopted child. Um, and so I knew, and we, and we all identify as black. And I knew that as black people we were up against racism. I knew as a mother raising a daughter, my daughter Georgia, we were up against sexism. I knew as um, people who identify as African from Ghana, we were up against and the bias that people hold against immigrants. I never really thought about gender in the same way. Like that, that there was oppression of well, that there was misinformation around gender, number one. I knew that there was gonna, I knew I was gonna have to deal with wage disparity. <laughs> uh, as, a, as, a, as a female, I knew that I was gonna have to deal with racism as a black person. I knew I was gonna have to deal with this idea that America is the only place that matters as an African. But I didn't realize that what Penelope was bringing was something to me at that time was scarier. It was, a, it was, it was change I had not even thought about. And the change was that, um, that Penelope brought was 
an eye opener to me. There is more than the cisgender experience. There is the transgender experience and the intersex experience and the um, everything in between <laughs> that experience. That to me was, it, it, it um, shocked me. I had never contemplated that. As many things I, as I had con contemplated and as aware as my family had made me about um, life, that was the thing I had not known. And it was the thing that was standing between myself and my child. Born Ready is what you call the book. So what, since Penelope was more advanced than us all in this conversation, what did he tell us in those, in those early moments and, and the progress of it? Well, that, you know, the, the idea that, that our children are born ready is the point. Penelope was born with everything he needed. He was born with the knowledge of self. He was born with the ability to um, pass through these seemingly impenetrable barriers. Penelope has, and our children have this, um, this ninja ability <laughs> to um, quantum physics, to, to pass through barriers, right? And uh, so Penel what Penelope knew was that he is one more than his body. We are more than our bodies. We are more than the laws lead us to think. Um, and I needed Penelope to explain to me over and over and over again, and then eventually pass that, that ninja information on to me and tell me a little bit, a, some, a little bit more about the life I didn't know. He sat with me for an hour and told me who he was, my own kid. What did he say? He said, um, and this you know, is a three-year-old and then four-year-old that we're talking about. At the time it was three. And you know, it's, I, I reluctantly didn't share a lot of the conversation at the time because I knew people would say he could not have said that or the child, you must've prompted the child. But when Penelope at three said to me in that room, I love you, but I don't want to be you. Mm -hmm. I want to be Papa. I don't want tomorrow to come because tomorrow I'll look like you, mama. I want a peanut. I want the doctors to make me a peanut. So he um, was talking about his body. He was talking about bodies. Uh -huh. He was talking about identity. And he was talking about how those were perhaps getting in the way of his will to want tomorrow to come. That was deep. When, it, when, it, when a three-year-old says, I don't want tomorrow to come, you have to take those words very seriously. Yes. And, and there are, you know, Jordi, when you first told me about Penelope and what was happening, it was a strange thing to say, but I, I meant it and I mean it even more. I was so grateful that the spirit of this child was given to you. Mm. So am I. Because you did not expect it, but you transformed into being mm -hmm. the mother that you probably never, well, how could you have envisioned you would be? What, what was the mother? Did you grow up wanting to be a mother? I did. 
100. I wanted to be, I wanted to be a businesswoman in a corner office in a Donna Karen suit <laughs> with shoulder pads. I remember that, that dream. I want, I wanted to be a mother and I wanted to be a teacher. So I had those three things that I knew from the very beginning. What was the first step that you had to take to be this mother that is clearly someone else than you thought you would be? Well, you know, <laughs> I had to go off track because the mother that I was used to being was taskmaster. When you have five children, you know, you're mastering tasks all day. So I was taskmaster. Um, I was problem solver. I was the central computer system for the house. So like, you know, I knew all the numbers. I knew all the schedules. I knew all the teachers. I knew all the doctors. I could get everyone out the house. I could cook, chop the garlic, saute, mm -hmm. vegetables. Um, but when Penelope stumped me, I still used that process. Like, let me fix this problem. Penelope was disruptive in the first two years of life, screaming, crying, nail biting, protesting, everything, getting dressed, brushing teeth, pushing all the kids around. Penelope was a bully. Um, and so I thought, let me just try to fix this the way a mama can fix things. So I did like more naps, uh, longer hugs. I um, took out dairy from the diet. <laughs> I thought... <laughs> Maybe it's a dairy allergy, right? And, so, and none of those fixing um, techniques worked. None. I mean, I remember cutting the hair helped a little bit. Uh, blue jeans helped a little bit. We could get out the house once we started wearing blue jeans. Um, but they weren't at the like, they weren't getting at the root of the issue and it was still bubbling. And so the turning point was that question that I, that I read from the book, what's really wrong? Why are you so angry? Like I had never asked Penelope for his information. Uh -huh. and I was just imposing my ideas on top of what I thought might be the problem. Um, and so when I asked that question, that was the first step in what I'm now calling radical parenting. Um, and then the listening for an hour when Penelope talked to me in that full hour, it, it could have been two hours. I mean, it, was, it felt endless. And Penelope just shared everything that was on his mind as a two-year-old, three-year-old. That was different for me. Right now, societally, it's as though we are being conditioned to give permission to certain people to terrorize other people on the basis that it is Southern culture. Mm. That this is their heritage, their way of life, and that they are entitled to their way of life as though nobody else is entitled to anything else. I would say it's not even Southern tradition. It is, and not, not everywhere, but I would say across the globe, there has been, and I'm just gonna be very um, clear about this. You don't see trans folks terrorizing cisgender folks. You don't see native and brown skin and black people destroying cultures. But what we have seen over and over again is a very small group of white, mostly men, rewriting the stories of people of color, of LGBT and of women. And I'm watching this story unfold. The folks that are sitting up there talking about trans people are scary and trans people need to not use bathrooms and trans people are, 
mostly rich white folks who don't know transgender folks. <laughs> and they're, they're creating this narrative that my Penelope is dangerous, is sick, and is perverted. And it reminds me very much of how the story of Black folks played out. So when I look at the, the story of, of trans folks, I'm not comparing trans people and Black people. I'm comparing oppression. I'm comparing uh, that, that hard, nasty bias. It smells the same to me. So when you talk about trans people should not use the bathroom of their choice, and you talk about Black people should not use water fountains, it's beyond the water fountain. It's beyond the bathroom. This is about regulating the other, the other well, in the blank. I've never said this out loud before, but when I was in my teens, I really was struck by the fact that white people that I did not know, I mean, I, I'm a school desegregation pioneer at, from eight years old. So I've probably gone to school with more white children than I have with black children. But still something really was not strange in my head in that I did not believe that wealthy white people, so the white people, once again, those others that I did not know used the bathroom. Isn't that something? And it really stuck with me how many times I would come back to that, this gnawing thing. And the more I thought about it later, I realized that it had everything to do with the segregated bathrooms. Mm -hmm. That even in the North, we had to worry where we could use a restroom. And if you can't use the restroom and if you can't hydrate, then you typically must stay home. You now, must be under control. Yeah, and this is why I, I see it as a, uh, it is regulating, trying trying to regulate my son, trying to regulate millions of people who um, are considered other. And I talked a lot about this recently, Janice. It's like, it's very easy for us to see as parents. I'll just take, I'll use parents as an example. It's very easy for parents to see a strong boy, a pretty girl, an A student. That's what registers for us. But if our children don't fit into those boxes, we, we see them less and we understand them less. And I wanted to start with the parent, parental perspective because parents are known to love their children, yet and still I didn't see my child, didn't fit into the box. And so when you look at the macrocosm of that, the world, when you're looking at the world, trying to put people into boxes, many of us don't fit into those boxes and then we become banished. <laughs> Don't come out until you can fit into a box. We're talking about millions of people, not a small segment, millions of people. And to me, it just becomes um, a domino effect. If millions of people are under siege, we will all experience that. Just we're all going through the trauma of it as well. I, uh, once again, you know, these things that rattle through your mind uh, from, from childhood and are still with you decades later. I'm thinking as well of, you know, the trauma that of gender. Mm -hmm. and, and at the same point, I remember like, why are there all these movies about this obvious psychopath? And, um, 
who happened to be King Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. And when I realized why he was killing these women who were his wives, so he's also a mass murderer, it was because they did not deliver him the son that he wanted in his society that he had to have a son because only males are valued enough for the realm to be passed onto them. So there are a whole lot of crazy things in that one sentence to unpack. But the idea that he then sends his wife to the gallows, um, be, no, <laughs> to have her head chopped off because he did not have a son. And now science tells us it's that the, the determinant of whether you have a son or a daughter is coming through the father, not I mean, through I the son. That, that, and you can take that and look at that and say, fertile women are easy for us to see. Women who don't produce children almost are invisible. We don't have a place for them. It's, it's, it's a, it's shame on us, but I'm just, I'm not speaking about what I believe in. I'm speaking about what we have um, proven um, as a, as a, as a value, right? Um, so when, when I started to see that my son was being pushed out of bathrooms and my son was being pushed out of um, sports teams and my son was being pushed out of line at school and pushed, 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 pushed back. I thought this sounds really familiar. At, this sounds like the way that my black family was how we were tried to be written out of. They tried to write us out of existence. And it has not, if it weren't for the perseverance of black mothers, we would not have an LGBTQAI movement. And I don't say that lightly. I mean that black women have brought the, 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 the structure of movements. They have brought the resistance of movements. They have brought the, the idea that self-determination is the most vital place to start. And you see it with the, with the building of black churches and the building of HBCUs and the building of our black communities. Black women were the, 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 the stickiness, they were the, they were the builders of those. And so when I think about what does Penelope need and what do, does the trans community need and what does America and the world need? It needs more black mothering to move us past this idea of othering. We will, other, <laughs> we will other everything and that will deplete us. And it's at this point, we need to start building up. Absolutely. Um, that role of black mothering and those women that you talk about in, in your book, Bold World. In fact, I'll put a, a picture, the picture that you're referring to, I will put on our website so that people can see and then they can click from there to buy the book. But um, how fortunate Pinnell is to then have had the line of the mothering and the grandmothering, the great-grandmothering, the great-great-grandmothering, and still then be this transgender boy. And if we did not stop and think about it, we would almost overlooked the connection. Um, Dr. Maya Angelou said at my graduation from Spelman College, we don't stop and ponder enough on the women who came before us. 
And we don't. And so we need to, because if I had not, and, and I talked about this in the book, I stopped and I went back down South and I sat and I looked at the pictures, the old photographs of the women who raised me. And I thought about them and I pondered on them. And I realized that what I needed to raise Penelope was in the stories of these women. Yes. Because I, for a moment, I thought, what the hell do I know about raising a trans kid up in this world? right? This transphobic world. How can I possibly do right by my son, a black trans boy? I just have to go back and listen to Lurleen. Yes. Lurleen knew. Uh, my great-great-grandmother knew. Absolutely. And in, in fact, that you have just crystallized why I started the Sister Days book club. And, and I knew that it was not just about a book. It was about this legacy, this eternal chain of Black mothering, especially through the trauma that is called America. And I realized that, I, I learned from, from my own scholarship that the first documented book club was created by Black women in 1831. And that there is, you can see the direct through line from that moment when a, not forget against the odds, against the trauma and the terror, they come together when they're being pushed out. Once again, this whole thing about being pushed out, Nat Turner has created his Nat Turner rebellion. And for that, whites who refuse to see that there is anything wrong with what they're doing are set on torturing all black people as payback for that. Mark Twain has a wonderful quote about that. Mark Twain has this wonderful section where he talks about the French Revolution and how it is easy to sympathize because we are taught to sympathize with that moment, that outbreak of violence in which the few elite were walked to the guillotine. Mm -hmm. Horrible, horrible. But we are not trained to know the thousands of years and the millions of lives mm -hmm. that that elite destroyed before yeah. the, the outburst of saying no came. And I think that this is so much, it, this is the, the story of America and it is what Baldwin talks about a lot and it is what I see as the blind spot of America. We are blind to the other world, right? So dominant culture does not see marginalized culture, chooses not to see, white folks choose not to see black folks. Cis, straight folks choose not to see queer folks. Cisgender folks choose not to see trans folks. And you assume that those worlds will just exist without you ever knowing them or feeling them. And what happens is worlds collide. The worlds collide. And then you're forced to deal with them. And you are forced to recognize everything you've denied up until that point. And so the collision for me was, was, was Penelope. If Penelope hadn't said what he did, and if Penelope hadn't insisted, I would have continued on thinking that my life, my world was it. And the, the disruption, the collision 
is often seen as um, a negative moment where there is killing or an uprising, a slave uprising, you know, or a revolt or, and, and, some, and oftentimes it is that because it is the world's colliding. But if you pay attention, it doesn't have to get to that point. Penelope brought me to the collision uh, swiftly without bloodshed. But there's usually bloodshed on these collisions. And it, it is just a, that's why we have to keep our eyes open. This is a time for not having blind spots and recognizing that there are multiple worlds happening simultaneously. You mentioned Maya Angelou. Maya was a dear friend and she would say, this is the time for thinking people to think. When we come back, more with our guest, Jody Patterson, author of two phenomenally groundbreaking books in their own right. The Bold World, A Memoir of Family and Transformation, and Born Ready, The True Story of a Boy Named Penelope. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Jody Patterson. She is a mother, an author, an activist, an advocate, and member of the board of the Human Rights Campaign. Jody, throughout this, we have talked about because obviously the lessons that Penelope has to tell us are so extraordinary. But you have five children. In these last few minutes, let's talk about the other four. Tell us something about each one of your phenomenal children. Thank you, because we, the, the the attention often is, um, in, in these conversations that I have, the attention is often centered on one child. Um, and as any mother would know, that is problematic in and of itself, right? So my dinner table has gotten pretty hectic. So I have five children. My firstborn is Georgia. She is um, truly a mother, not biological. She has mothered her siblings. She has mothered me. She has mothered her father. She really protects us and thinks about um, us in terms of our unity. She was from my first marriage. And so she's seen how my family has, how our family has shifted since then. So George is my first and she really is a mother. Um, she lives in Switzerland. She's daring. She left America. She left college to learn another language and a culture in Switzerland. And then I have Cassius, my second child, who is a scientist. His brain is, operates through the lens of science, through the lens of math. He is, as he says himself, numerically outnumbered by the family. <laughs> he is conservative. Um, he is an atheist. Um, and he does not particularly like sports. Then come his two brothers, Pinnell and Othello. They are athletes. <laughs> uh, they don't, um, they are not conservative. And I believe they're, they're like fricking frack. They compete with each other, but they're always together, Pinnell and Othello. And then I have an adopted son whose name is Ernine. One second before we get to him, do talk more about Othello okay. just on his own. Yeah. So Othello is, um, this As, is really look, I'm the auntie here and I cannot, I 
give each of the five their own space. I, I clumped <laughs> we'll them together. Be in trouble. You're absolutely right, Janice. I clumped Othello and Pinnell together because they spend so much time together. But this is what's interesting about Othello. He has given me the reminder that bodies, people develop at their own pace. Othello did not speak, not a word, for the first three, four, four years of his life. And we took him to all the doctors and we weren't sure what was going on. This, at age four, he just started speaking. He also broke his leg uh, very severely before he learned to walk. He is the strong athlete of the family now. I never, uh, I always understood that children operate at their own pace, but Othello reminded me through his speech and how he learned and through his walk and how he learned to use his body, that there is no perfect timing for children. They have their own time, time frame, time setting. And so Othello has become, he is purely the athlete of the family. Um, he is a lover. He is literally up under my arm all the time. Um, and he's also, he's become a magician <laughs> during COVID. He learned magic tricks because I took away his, uh, his cell phone. Okay. <laughs> Another story about that one, but um, he's really an outstanding kid. And being the baby of the bunch is hard. You know, you, it's hard to get your shine, but Othello takes his shine. Um, Air Nine is, is our is the last to join the family. So he's the baby, the true baby of the bunch, but he is the oldest, he's 28 years old. So I met Aranine when he was um, graduating from high school. He rolled into to, um, a store that I owned at one point in downtown Manhattan and we built up a friendship. Um, and he is, a, he is the person who brings faith to our family. He's not biological. We've only known him for the past, what, decade and a half. Um, and we have developed this family with him, around him, <laughs> in conjunction. And we and I parent him with his biological mother. So I have to say, with with Airdyne, it is um, an unexplainable love that you would want to witness, because on paper it doesn't make sense. I met him on this, you know, on the corner of New York City. He was already fully formed at nineteen. I brought him into our home. And everyone think, thought at the time it was quite uh, risky. And he's proven to be um, inseparable from his siblings. So those are my five children. I've got um, one who brings faith, <laughs> one who brings science, one who brings a wisdom that only women have, one who brings the idea that everything is flexible, and one who brings this this notion that children come at their own pace. Those are my five children. Those are the five children that make us whole. Jody Patterson, thank you for joining me here on the show today. Thank it's you, been a pleasure to have you at last. <laughs> you, see the, um, you see the at last Etta James behind me. Oh, subliminal. Yeah, there she is. My thanks to Jody Patterson and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast, links to her books, to see that photo of her women and hear Etta James's immortal at last, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.